quick poll. How many of you have turned your heat on? Ah, a few, a few. Okay, just curious. That's why I wore a sweater today. We haven't. You wake up and it's cold and then you go outside and it's warmer outside than it is in your house. And you're like, maybe my wife is right. We need to turn the heat on. If you would open your copy of Scripture and join me in John chapter 8 this morning, we are going to look at verses 12 through 59. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to take one of the Bibles in the chair in front of you and open to page 894. In those Bibles, you'll be right with us as we study through God's Word. And you can take that Bible home as a gift from South Canyon. We'd love for you to have a copy of the Scripture that you can read and study and you can even bring it back next week when you come back. So, last Friday, a high-profile Pentington County trial was canceled. The reason that this trial, which had been delayed for nearly eight years, was canceled was for the lack of an expert witness who was to uh, give the entire defense of the person who's being charged, the entire case hinged on the testimony of this expert witness who was to testify that the defendant was not guilty by reason of insanity. You can have a trial with judges and jurors, a defense attorney, a prosecuting attorney, a plaintiff and a defendant, but you need witnesses for a trial to continue. Witnesses are an essential part, not only of trials today, but even in the time of Jesus. You see, the Jewish law stated that one witness alone was not enough to condemn or convict anyone of any crime or offense. It had to be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. We read that in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. You also needed at least a couple witnesses to validate your credentials, Even something positive, not condemning you in a court of public uh, trial, but also to support any legal claim you had to a property, a possession, or a claim to a family. You had to have witnesses that would validate that. And that's what we see at play here in John chapter 8. Here's the idea. As we look at this passage of Scripture, and there's lots of little vignettes, a lot of things that are being shared and taught in this passage as Jesus is being challenged, we're in the point of John's gospel where for chapters 8, 9, and 10, we are going to see Jesus re, uh, responding to the most serious opposition that he has faced to this point. Everything has built up to this point of a ministry where now his reputation has spread, people know who he is, and as a result of that, uh, his critics are going to be even more adamant in opposing him. And then as we get to chapter 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem on that last uh, week of Passover, and chapters 13 through 17, he's in the upper room the night before he died. Chapter 18 and 19 is his trial and his crucifixion, and then 20 and 21 are his resurrection and revealing himself to his disciples. So in the middle of John's gospel, we find real opposition to Jesus. Everything he says is being picked apart. Everything he does is being scrutinized. 
And what we learn from this as Jesus, as I see this passage, it it unfolds in two halves. Um, Verses 12 through 30 is we see our Lord doing something. He's evangelizing people even while he's being opposed. In verses 12 through 30, the actions that our Lord is taking is standing in the temple and he is declaring himself to be the light of the world. And he is inviting people to come to him and to believe on him. And then as we get to verses 31 through 59, we see that Jesus begins discipling those who had just believed in him. And yet even his discipleship is being opposed. So what do we make of this? Our Lord is being opposed in everything that he does. Here's here's the takeaway I see it for this morning. As you and I, members of South Canyon Baptist Church, are making more and better disciples of Jesus, we will be opposed by those who don't know the Father. And so don't be surprised when your good is spoken evil of, when you are standing in your office and you're sharing the gospel or with a coworker over lunch or you're talking to neighbors or friends and word is coming around that you are actively trying to share the gospel with people and then that is uh, rock, uh, people are rising up against that don't be surprised by that so let's dig in as we look at verses 12 through 20 first and then verses 21 through 30 we see this Jesus spoke to them saying I am the light of the world Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, you couldn't convict someone on the basis of one witness, but that's what they're trying to do. Jesus answered them, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So then they pivot to, who, where is your father? In verse 19, Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So let's pause here for a moment and see what Jesus is doing in these verses. He's declared that he was the Father's witness. He is the one the Father sent into the world to be the light to the world. And so he is calling people to believe not only his testimony, but the Father's witness as well. So when he declares, I am the light of the world in verse 12... I wonder if there's any significance to the fact that he's doing this in the temple, as verse 20 says, in the court of the treasury, which we understand was the court of the woman, of the women. It was the outer layer of the temple courtyard, 
and the treasury was held there in the court of the women because that was where the Jews could give an offering. The court of the men was another layer going into the center. So Jesus is teaching there. And we don't know if this took place during the feast time that John brought us to in chapter 7. But if you remember verses 2 of chapter 7, we were told that this was the feast uh, of booths or the feast of tabernacles. And we see in verse 14 of chapter 7 that Jesus stood up in the temple in the middle of the feast and he started making statements about his fact that if you come unto me, uh, you know, he's teaching and preaching. And then in verse 37, he declares, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So is this the same feast and these are just different days in which Jesus was teaching? One of the reasons to support this is because of Jesus's claim to be the light of the world. You see, the Feast of the Booze had two elements to it that made it significant for the Jews. There was, as we saw in chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, water symbolically was poured out over the altar that had been used during that feast, and it was a washing of it, and Jesus is saying, hey, I am the, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me, and I will give you rivers of living water. He's drawing on that element to make a statement about himself. In that same feast, on the last day, it says, uh, or I'm sorry, on the first day, they would light these four huge candles. And it was a light that would illuminate the temple area. It would shine out over the city at night. And that image of light would bring with it a lot of singing and celebration with music and dancing would be in the temple every night throughout the feast. So here's this image that Jesus is teaching in the courtyard of the women, the temple treasury, and then he is declaring that he is the light of the world. He's using this, drawing from the image of light from the feast. Now without getting into too much detail, what does Jesus mean when he says, I'm the light of the world? We understand his statement to include, he is the truth. He is the path to knowing who the Father is. He is life. He is understanding. He is protection. He is salvation. He is deliverance from darkness. And on and on we could go. In summary, Jesus is declaring himself to be the embodiment of all these things, not just one thing. Jesus makes this statement, but verse 13 says, they quickly rebuke him for bearing witness about himself. So then Jesus responds in verses 14 through 18, which actually should cause our minds to go back to chapter 5. So if you look at chapter 5, let's let's take a little journey there for a moment. I want to bring your attention to verses 31 through 40, because this issue of Jesus saying incredibly arrogant things about himself has already been addressed. In chapter 5 and verse 31, we read that Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. It almost sounds just like what he says here in chapter 8. Then he goes on to say in verses 32 through 40 that there are others who bear witness about him. 
And he said in verse 33 of chapter 5, you sent to John the baptizer. He's borne witness about me. The testimony that I've given or received not only comes from John's mouth, but it's an even greater testimony. As you look at verse 36, it comes from the Father, that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, and his form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. But then Jesus goes on to add another witness, the scriptures. You think that in them you will have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He goes on to speak of Moses and the commandments and the law, and Moses speaks of him. So Jesus has already established the fact that when he stands forth and he says, if you're thirsty, come to me, and I will make wells, rivers of water spring up in you. I will satisfy you in a way that nothing else can. Or if he stands in front of people and says, I am the light of the world, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus knows exactly what he's saying, and he's already demonstrated that he has big, big endorsements. Scripture, the greatest prophet of the day, John the Baptist, even greater than that is the father of all creation, Yahweh himself. And so Jesus rebukes them. He's presented those witnesses before, but here in chapter 8, he is only going to present one, and that is the Father. And you see that in verses 16 through 18. And we ought not to be surprised when Jesus says, I'm only here doing what my Father has told me to do. I am doing, this is the testimony that he has given about me. It should not surprise us at this point that the Jews reject what Jesus says. They have no time for this argument They're not interested in hearing him out. And so that's why in verse 19, at the very beginning, they quickly ask him, well, where is your father? Who is your father? And once again, they refuse to follow the advice of Nicodemus back in chapter 7. Remember, he urged that we should hear him first and learn what he's doing before we make assessments about Jesus. So Jesus declares in verse 19 and 20, you don't know me or my father. To know one is to know the other. We see this in chapter 5. He said it already. We will see it again in chapter 10 and verse 30. Jesus makes it very clear. I just want to read this for you very quickly. We're going to be there in a few weeks. But listen to what Jesus says in chapter 10 and verse 30. I and the Father are one. That's why Jesus can say, if you know me, you know the Father. And if you know the Father, you know me. Now, that's true about him. It's not true about any of us. If you know me, you don't know my dad. If you know my dad, you can see some of my dad in me, but I am not a good picture of my dad. And the same is true for each of us as it relates to our parentage. But with Jesus, to know Christ, this doctrine, this truth that we're taught in scriptures is that this God is one in three persons. We're not going to get in the doctrine of the Trinity this morning. We're going to keep going. But notice what happens after Jesus makes this statement in verse 19. For the first time, his opponents are silenced. 
They don't speak back to him. They pushed back to his first declaration, I'm the light of the world. Oh, wait a second, you're bearing witness about yourself. They pushed back after his statement of, of who he was sent to witness and testify about, and that the father is witnessing to him. They're asking him, well, who's your dad? Where is he? But after this third statement of his equality, his oneness with the Father, we see this. They are powerless to stop him. The people who have been plotting to kill Jesus, the people who have put out notice to all the other Jews, if you see him, let us know. He is not allowed to teach publicly. What does it say? These words he spoke, verse 20, in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So they have no power against his power. Not only do they not understand what he's teaching and talking about, they do not have the power to refute or stop Jesus. Now let me just ask you a question. If that is the case, who has the greater authority? Who's demonstrated a greater authority? Jesus is going to speak more about his relationship with the Father and He returns to that in verses 21 through 30. So let's continue on. He returns. He is literally going to go back to the Father. And then he says, those who reject him will die in their sin. So let's read verses 21 through 30. Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. And where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said to him, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, and I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning, I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand what he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So let's unpack this second aspect of this first half where Jesus is evangelizing in the midst of opposition. And he doesn't let the opposition distract him from continuing to preach the gospel. You must believe in me. And I am he who the Father sent. I am the one that all Scripture is looking toward. I am the only hope for humanity. This is Jesus' claim. He doesn't back away from it in the face of opposition. We see in verse 22 that they don't understand the fact that he's going to leave. And what I find interesting is these men who are trying to arrest and kill Jesus have no power over him to stop him from speaking. And then here's what Jesus says in their presence. Knowing what is going to set, what's going to happen, he announces that he will depart of his own will. And the fathers too. 
for his own purposes. I am going and you cannot follow me. Now, just think about this for a moment. It's both prophetic. Jesus knows that he was sent to the earth to die for sin, and he knows that his time is short and that he will be crucified by the very people who are opposing him now. There's that side of things. But Jesus is also declaring that he he has total control over this. They may be the hands, but he is the one who's orchestrating all of this. It is not happening to him. He is choosing this path. And we again see this in John chapter 10. The good shepherd lays down his life, and guess what? He also has the power to raise it up again. Friend, this is a heavy thing that we've been dealing with. And I don't want you to be afraid to deal with the hard and heavy truths of Scripture and to sit here and think about what Jesus is claiming. But this is totally, and I mean absolutely, paradigm shifting. What Jesus is saying is either the height of arrogance and lunacy or it's true. There is no middle ground. You cannot hear him say the things he says and come to any other conclusion than either he's crazy or he's right. He does not leave any middle ground. He says, if you don't believe these statements he's making about him, you will die in your sins. Now, what are sins? Sins are our disobedience to our Creator. The one who ordained this world and everything that should work in it has established his authority over it. And when we reject him, we actually not only sin against him, but we sin against others. It may take the place of a lie. It may show up and manifest itself as lust or greed, pride, covetousness, murder, adultery, immorality, self-destructive behavior. On and on, we could list out what sins are, but where do they all arise from? They all arise from hearts that are in rebellion to the lordship of God over his creation. And Jesus is saying there is a day of reckoning where those sins will lead to a real and everlasting judgment if they are not dealt with here and now in this life. And he says that he alone has the power to address all our sins. Not just all my sins, all y'all's sins. Both the ones that you have done, the ones that you will do as well. Notice, as we go back to the passage, Jesus not only declares that he has the power to lay down his life, that they may have plans to put an end to him, but those plans are actually his plans, and they're part of a bigger story that they have no clue about. But if you look at verses 23 and 24, Jesus makes a distinction between himself and the Jewish leaders. They're from below, but he's from above. They will die in their sins unless they believe that he, that I am he, he says. And that's what prompts their question in verse 25. Well, who are you? And Jesus reiterates in verses 25 and 26, I'm the guy the Father sent. I've been telling you guys this over and over and over again, but you refuse to believe in me. And then in verses 28 and 29, he predicts his death. And he says, 
this death of mine is going to challenge everyone's mind about who I say I am. And what will happen is my death and my resurrection will prove that I have been rightly representing the Father. And what do we see in verse 30? Many believed in him. John uses that word belief a lot for a lot of different categories of people. What's the real length and duration of their faith? Is it genuine, transforming, saving faith? Well, we don't know until we get to the end of the story. But here, what we see is that the words, as they hit ears and settle in people's minds and hearts, is bearing fruit. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world and have authority over all people. And even as they challenged him over such claims, they're powerless to stop him. He proves his authority. And as we wrap up verses 21 through 30, we see a similar pattern that we saw in verses 12 through 20. Jesus highlights this unique relationship with the Father in both passages. He also highlights the fact that those who reject him do so because they are from this world. If you have no interest at all in spiritual things, let me just tell you, it's because you are not of the Spirit of God. You are not a Christian. And and that's true for all of us. None of us are born with this innate desire for spiritual things about knowing who God is. It's a gift of the Spirit. It's what Jesus promised in chapter 7, that the the Spirit had not come when he said these things about, if you're thirsty, come to me, and I will uh, give you living water, water that will produce springs and rivers that flow out of your own heart. He, He said that all about the Holy Spirit's work. That's the only thing that changes us, is the Spirit of God. And so Jesus is not only highlighting his unique relationship with the Father and the fact that those who reject him do so because they're of this world, but he also demonstrates his authority by pronouncing judgment upon those who reject him. He says, you will die in your sins twice, verse 21 and verse 24. He taught that his death would also be a critical part of their condemnation. It would reveal that the Son of Man is also the Son of God, the Savior the world needs. Now let me just say something. Let's just take a pause here for a moment. Jesus is witnessing. He's evangelizing. And people are trying to shut him down. In his book, The Coming of the Holy Spirit, Philip Jensen writes that one of the most overlooked concepts of bearing witness is this. It is opposition to the task of witnessing. A key characteristic of all witnesses is that they are to tell the truth in opposition to other people's claims. Are you following with me? And that makes total sense, doesn't it? If there's no difference of opinion or belief, and there's total agreement, there is no need for witnesses, right? And and let's just just contextualize this to the world and, and the day in which we live. The day in which we live says, here's the direction to go. 
whatever makes you happy, whatever you want to do, just go this direction. All religions have the same destination. There's not a distinction. In fact, religion's probably not the most helpful thing to give you a happy and fulfilling life. Religion tends to divide people and frustrate people and cause problems. So let's just get rid of religion altogether, and let's all go this direction of pursuit of pleasure, of peace, of our own individual identities and our fulfillment. And here's the lone voice of the gospel saying, this is the way to death. This is the way to life. And it is, it's flowing against, the, it's fighting against the stream. It's going in the opposite direction. And the reason, because they're, they're two conflicting opinions. Jensen goes on to write, Built into the very concept of being a witness, then, is opposition. Christian, we are contending for the faith that has been once and for all delivered to the saints. Don't be surprised when you suffer for the name of Jesus. The good news is this. That although these religious and political leaders refused to believe in Jesus, verse 30 tells us that many others did. And notice, although Jesus' death would demonstrate many things, Jesus doesn't say that those who rejected him would be converted by his death. And again, this highlights another sobering reality of God's divine judgment. Hardened hearts will remain hardened even when the truth is irrefutable. Some of these men, no doubt, as we look in the book of Acts, it says that many of the priests and even chief priests believed after the resurrection, but there were countless numbers that did not. So you've been there. You know that your child took the last of whatever, ate the last of whatever, and they are adamant they did not do it. Everybody else knows the absolute truth, and they will hold on to this rock, that this, this guilt that's draped around their neck. It will take them to the bottom of the deepest pool, but they won't let it go. This is, this is the truth of the gospel. And this is why we share it and we plead with people to believe and to repent. To not just hear these things and to keep rejecting it, but to actually pray that God would give them hearts of faith. We don't want anyone to grow hardened to it. Now you're wondering, my word, James, we're only in verse 30 and we've got 29 more to go. I've prepared for that. All right? Look it. We see Jesus, he's making an invitation to sinners to come to him in faith, and it's met with a mixed response. Those who remained hardened stayed hardened, and yet many believed. This next section opens with Jesus now, as we look at verse 31, he begins to speak to those who believe, who believed in him. If you abide in my word, he says in verse 31, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him. Now that they is a difficult they. Who are they? I think it's not the Jews who believed, but the Jews who had been opposing Jesus. They're interrupting as he's turned away from those who are arguing with him to speak and address those who are believing in him, 
these guys are, are getting back in the way in Jesus' periphery. They're placing himself, themselves between Jesus and his disciples. And they're interrupting his teaching yet again. And so they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you will say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet... You seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, We are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. You see, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me? Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered them, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Let's pause there for a moment. And let's consider what Jesus has said. As he begins instructing those who believed in him in verses 31 and 32, I want us to notice the conditional nature of what he says. If, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. That if is not when you abide in my word, but if. It's a conditional statement And what Jesus is trying to communicate is that the Christian life is a lifelong pursuit. It is a journey. It is not a sporadic or occasional, I'll pick it up when I want to, and then when I do pick it up, then automatically I become a disciple of Jesus, and then I can stop following, and then I cease to be a disciple. Jesus is very clear here. You cannot check in and check out of being a Christian. It's not like scrolling through your social media to get caught up on all the feeds and all the posts, and then you kind of put it away. Jesus says those who remain in the faith hold fast to truth. And that then they live this life of devotion, not a sporadic, not a hit and miss, but a continuous relationship. Those are the people he calls disciples. 
And so what we see here is a call to believe in the gospel's claim. This claim that there's salvation in no other name than in Jesus is a call to put one's entire confidence in the person of Jesus, in the teaching of Jesus. And once we've experienced the forgiveness of sins by faith in this, in this Jesus, we're called to order our lives around his teaching. Did you notice in that passage how John connects freedom and life? How John also connects sin and slavery and sin and death. How he connects faith to abiding and unbelief to judgment. So Jesus is saying, only those who abide in my word will know the truth. And it is that truth that will set them free. And I think this is a very personal invitation. This you that you see in verses 31 and 32 is a plural. That means it's a y'all. It's for us all. For anyone and everyone who would seek to trust and follow Jesus is the promise, unequivocal, that if you follow me and my words abide in you, you are my disciples. In doing so, John is using language that makes it clear that our relationship with Jesus and the Father is connected to obeying Jesus' words. This is a real point of contention for a lot of us. But I don't want to obey here. I'll take these bits because I like them and they're easy for me. You know, that, that kind of thing, don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do. I can do that. But as we were in our discovery class this morning, looking at the one another commands in the New Testament, those I'm not real keen on. You know, like be loving to others, show hospitality to others, get into other people's lives, like give up evenings and weekends to sit down and talk with other Christians? Like, that's going to take time. I want to go to the hills. The leaves are turning. I want to go check things out. I want to have the last gasp of summer. So we may find it really easy to not have an immorality, to not be drunk, to not do these wrong things. But then we don't really want to lean into the positives of the Christian life reading our Bible, praying, giving to support the church, giving our lives for the good of others? Well, make no mistake, John has connected these two, Jesus' relationship with the Father and our relationship with them. And that is a relationship that is bound, requires, and built around this idea of keeping their word. We need to follow Christ. Jesus teaches that discipleship, true conversion, will result in obeying and keeping, abiding in his word. You can't separate a confession of faith in Christ. You can't separate it from good works. The epistle of James marries these two together. Faith without works is dead. And works without faith, it has no value. Now we look at verse 33. And we see that the leaders immediately interrupt Jesus and declare their offspring of Abraham. They've never been enslaved to anyone. They're totally overlooking their own history as a people. They have been slaves to many people. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks. On and on it goes. They are occupied by Rome. 
who has built a tower right outside the temple courtyard. They have been slaves to many people. And so this back and forth leads to an extended uh, argument about lineage in verses 33 through 47. And I want you to notice Jesus declared three spiritual truths here. We'll keep moving on. Verse 34 and 35, he says this, You are slaves to sin. Those who don't keep my word are slaves to sin. And guess what? Only sons receive an inheritance, not slaves. Then in verse 36, Jesus makes another spiritual declaration. Whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. We're going to be singing that glorious hymn in our conclusion. Um, Who you say I am. And this glorious truth that Jesus truly does set us free and we will be free indeed. Jesus also made a third point in this. In verses 37 and 38, that sons imitate their fathers. Yeah, I know you guys are offspring of Abraham. You're missing the point. I'm not talking about physical lineage. I'm talking about a spiritual lineage. Yet, even though you're Abraham's children, you are trying to kill me. And why? Because my words have no place in you. And you are doing what you have heard from your father. So in verses 39 through 47, Jesus is speaking clearly of a spiritual heritage. God's children would believe as Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Satan's offspring reject God's word. They lie and they murder. We see that in verses 39 through 47. And so any appeal to seek freedom, it it devolved into this debate over physical lineage. And Jesus used that as a spiritual metaphor for kinship. They declared they're God's children. Jesus pointedly rebukes them for not knowing God, or else they would have received and accepted him. And this gets to a really important part of Israel's hard-heartedness. I just want to bring your attention quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 29. I'd encourage you to read this chapter later this afternoon or sometime this week. It's really profound to me that the book of Deuteronomy is written at a time when Israel is literally on the brink of entering the promised land. Moses' last days are recorded in chapter 30, 29, 30, and 31. He's rewriting the law, and he's giving lessons, and this is the generation that's going to inherit the land. They were born in the wilderness. They watched every one of their parents and grandparents die as a result of their unbelief when they first sent the 12 spies into the land. And here is what Moses says to this generation that will inherit the land, who witnessed all the signs. He says, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. You have seen all the great trials, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day... The Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. This is so sad. These will be the greatest generation under Joshua's leadership. They will defeat all these enemies and they will serve the Lord all their lives, but then another generation will grow up that did not know these works. 
And here it is, before all of this happens, God is speaking through Moses saying, you've seen everything, but you don't believe it because God hasn't given you the ability to see, to hear, to understand. This is the problem that Jesus is facing in the New Testament. And he proves it. What are the inherent realities of sonship? Well, the son is promised an inheritance from the father. A slave is not. A son speaks and acts according to what he has seen and heard from his father. He mentions that in verse 38 and in verse 44. A son treasures and loves and values what his father loves and treasures and values. Verse 42. A son's will and desires reflect his father's will and desire. In verse 44, whether that be good or bad, some will reflect the attitudes of Christ and God because they are sons of God. Others are going to reflect the attitudes and the values of the devil. Here's the culmination of it, though. Look at verse 47. How we respond to God and to Jesus demonstrates who your father is. And I recognize this has been a heavy morning. We're we're not trying to just go to the happy parts of the Scriptures and to those little trite, pithy sayings of be warmed and be filled and go away from church in ten minutes and, man, that was great. This is hard truth. Your affection, your response to the Word reveals your identity. And Jesus is promised in verses 48 through 56 to give life to everyone who keep his word, who embrace the eternal life. They will never die. This is the offer that Christ makes to all. Verse 51, all who keep his words will never die. Jesus says, I keep my Father's word in verse 55. And then as we continue on, look at, we'll just pick up verse 51 where we left off. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be, as if Jesus hasn't said it enough? So he answers, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. If they're paying attention, if they're awake at this point of the argument, Jesus has just said several times in chapter 8 that he and the father of one... To know me is to know the Father. To know me, or to know the Father is to receive me. And now Jesus is saying, if I glorify myself, it's nothing, but it's the Father who glorifies me. And who is my Father? He's the one that you name as your God. But you have not known him, he says in verse 55. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen, and have you seen Abraham? And this is where it gets really pointed. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
I am. And those are not lost on these Jews. Those two words, I am. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus has immediately attached himself to that covenant language of the book of Exodus where God revealed himself to Moses as the I am. Who, who am I to tell when you send me to go back to Egypt and tell the people to follow me, leave Pharaoh and come out into the wilderness? Who am I going to say sent me? You tell them I am did. The I am is the one who made the promises to Abraham, who made those same promises to Isaac, who made those same promises to Jacob, who has made those same promises to Israel. Who, Christian, has made those same promises to you and I this morning? The eternal, unchanging, everlasting, living God. He is the I am. And Jesus is claiming all of that divinity. He is saying, I am the one that you worship I am equal with the Father. I have come from the Father. And friend, we believe these truths. We are not gathered here because there's exciting preaching going on. We are gathered here because the Word is true and the one that the Word tells us about is the even truer one. We believe that Jesus is the Savior that the world needs. We confessed our sins against this holy God. We have pled for the blood of Christ to be applied to us. We have trusted that Jesus is enough to satisfy the Father, and we have hid ourselves in Christ. And we appeal to you today that you do the same, that you hear the witness of John the Apostle who wrote this letter. You hear the witness of John the Baptizer, of Jesus and the Father, that he, this uneducated Jewish rabbi, who declared himself to be divine, is truly who he says he is. Don't be like those who hardened their hearts. Don't be like those who continued to try to kill Jesus. Instead, be one who believes. Here's the interesting thing I love about Deuteronomy chapter 29. Didn't I tell you to read this today? you got to check out verses 10 through 15. Because after saying that God has not given that generation the heart to believe and to understand and hear God's word, here's what God also says. I'm going to make a covenant with you, Israel, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp. From the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which he is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then there is this most blessed word of assurance that relates to each and every one of us because he also goes on to say, it is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God and with whoever is not here with us today. You see that in the Old Testament, God intended to save people from all nations And that here we are hearing the gospel this morning and the promise, the covenant that God entered with those who believe his word in Deuteronomy is the same covenant that he is inviting us to embrace today. Believe in Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God. This is for you and me. 
So we've seen as we will make and work to make more and better disciples of Jesus that we will be opposed by those who don't know the Father. But Christian, don't let opposition keep you from making disciples. Jesus, we don't see any self-editing. In fact, he got even more animated about the fact of who he was. He didn't shrink back from boldly declaring the gospel in public spaces and then start whispering behind closed doors. Don't you do that either, Christian. Don't be antagonistic and argumentative, but be firm and confident in your efforts to make more and better disciples. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. This is, this is the way, to use a Mandalorian reference, for some of you that are still awake. This is the way. It will be this way. You take a stand for Jesus, and it's going to cost you something. As you face opposition for making more and better disciples, here's, here's what we should do. Instead of shrinking from that, we should rejoice that we have entered into our Savior's suffering. That we are so closely identified with Jesus that we are suffering for that name. Praise the Lord that we have that privilege. Thank you for enduring this wonderful passage, but heavy passage. And so let's pray, and then Joel's going to come up, and we are going to stand and we're going to sing about this great I Am that has revealed himself to us. Lord God, we pray that you would work marvelously in us. Not just that we would believe, although that is indeed a great miracle, because there is none that seeks after God, not one. You have to woo us to yourself. You have to make the gospel attractive. You have to make us thirsty and hungry for something that's beyond what this world offers. We thank you that the miracle of the gospel is that any of us believe. But we also pray, Lord, that you would give us a boldness to take that gospel. And that we, too, might, like the apostles and those generations between us and them, take our stand, experience our suffering for the name of Jesus. We pray that you would give us courage to make more and better disciples. And we thank you for this glorious truths that you've shared with us today. In Jesus' name, amen.